Hey guys! Welcome to That Florida Feeling. That was my husband doing my intro. Shout out to him for getting on the podcast for a second. I hope you guys have had a great week. I know I have. It's been a much better week than last week. I also hope that Fred didn't affect too many of you guys. I know hurricanes are never fun and we're still in that season, so definitely stay up to date and stay prepared. I try to give you guys updates when I can on Instagram when I find them. So hopefully that helps y'all out too. Uh, Thanks for coming back for another week and sticking with me through last week. It was a bit of a rough week. I hope you guys enjoyed hearing some of my favorite things. And since it wasn't the worst episode, hopefully, maybe we'll do that again sometime way, way in the future. Thank you so much to That Motherly Feeling podcast for the review and the kind words. If you've not checked out That Motherly Feeling, it's an amazing podcast about being a new mom and parenthood. It's one of my friends, Mary Kay. It's her podcast. It's also an Anchor podcast, so you can find it on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple. She does some amazing tips, and she's got some great things to say about parenthood and stuff you can definitely relate to if you've been a parent or you are a new parent. So definitely check it out. Don't forget to leave the reviews on Apple so that more people can see the podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. And thank you so much to all of you who share and interact on the Facebook and Instagram posts, even though... You guys on Twitter, you're getting up there, so thank you for that. I really appreciate all the love you've given me lately. It's been pretty overwhelming, and it's still amazing to me that you guys want to hear about Florida. So thank you so much. Quick shout-out to Ree, Jamie, Mary Kay, Matthew, uh, just a couple of the people. Desmond, he's been an awesome one lately. Uh, Florida Men uh, on Florida Man, they've been super helpful with this podcast. So thank you guys. Just want to give a quick shout out and say I really appreciate it. Thank you for the episode ideas. Thank you for the favorites about Florida, about the Florida stories that are going to make an appearance in the future. Oh, also shout out to Bones and Brush Podcast. They've been super nice. Uh, Just wanted to say thank you to everybody. I don't know if I get to say that enough, so I wanted to take a second to do that. So, if you went on to that Florida Feeling Instagram and you answered the question of the week, because we're going to do questions of the week, um, you probably have an idea for the topic this week, and it's the Everglades. By the way, shout out to Ree for this topic. Thank you so much. I would never have thought of that. I'm also surprised that most of us have never been to the Everglades because uh, it's something that Florida is really known for and it's kind of a tourist thing. But I think after this uh, podcast, you're going to find that you've been to the Everglades and you probably didn't realize it. I went to the Everglades, the official Everglades, when I was younger, and I don't think I appreciate it as much as I should have. It's really such a rich area of history and diversity and it's just really cool and it's definitely on my list to go back soon so that I can absolutely take it in and take in, take some good photography pictures and really just enjoy it. And the Everglades do have a rich history that you don't realize. And it's filled with restoration, survival, tourist, and tragedy. Uh, but it's a main, main place for the love of the outdoors and the survival of the native Florida plants and animals. And we're going to talk about that soon. So what do you think of when you think of the Everglades? You think of alligators, the swamps, airboats, the dreaded... Florida Swamp Ape. Yes, he's going to make another appearance. Uh, But all those are actually pretty accurate if you think about those for the Everglades. It's a large region of tropical wetlands in the southern part of Florida. And the unique thing about the Everglades is that it's a region that's really not present in any other part of the world. And that's one of the main reasons that it is such a national treasure and even a U.S. national park. So where is the Everglades? Well, They actually began near Orlando with the Kissimmee River that flows south into Lake Okeechobee. And in the wet season, this can form a slow-moving river that is 60 miles wide and 100 miles long that ends up flowing continually south 
over a limestone shelf and to the Florida Bay at the southern end of the state. So the Everglades is actually a pretty wide area. And they have a large range of uh, weather patterns that can go from extreme flooding to absolutely drought in the dry season. So you probably have been to the Everglades and just didn't realize it. And of course, the Everglades have shrunk over time uh, due to nature, fires, and of course, building. Because, you know, got to get all that property. But the Everglades have a history of human habitation in the very southern part of the Florida Peninsula that dates back quite a few years. In fact, about 15,000. And the region was dominated by the Calusa and, T T I'm not going to say this right, Tequesta tribes that were here long before the Europeans tried to colonize Florida. Now, the Seminole Wars also forced the Seminoles, which are mostly Creek people who had been warring to the north and ended up joining other tribes, to create a new culture in the South Florida, in the Florida Everglades, after being driven out of the north part of Florida. And the Seminoles adapted really well to the area, especially after the Seminole War, and that's how they were able to resist being removed by the U.S. Army in later years. So, go Seminoles. But that really also helped shape a lot of the Everglades, especially with the culture and the people. And of course, migrants came to the area, and they really continued to move into the area pretty, around, pretty close to the 1800s. And actually, they even proposed draining the Everglades so that they could do crops and other kind of agriculture. So they proposed canals for the drainage, and they were actually proposed in 1840. But of course, the way things happened, they didn't actually happen until the 1880s. And they actually thought that the, the canals were great, and they continued to construct them into the early 1900s. And this is actually kind of what spurred South Florida's development, tourism, and economy through that time. Now, the project gained so much speed that it even morphed into the 1947 Central and Southern Florida Flood Control Project that is built over 1,400 miles of canals, levees, and water control devices. And if you live in South Florida, then you understand that these are definitely things that you need, especially during the wet season. This work, though, actually helped to develop and grow the Miami area, and they even used some of the water from the Everglades to be diverted into the city. Now, the development even saw some of the Everglade land turn into farmland, which is what the migrants wanted to begin with. Uh, they definitely were trying to grow sugarcane, which is actually goes really well in this area and it became a place to grow other crops as well and the actual development of the area of of and around the everglades means that close to 50 percent of the original everglades has actually been developed into the urban or agriculture areas that you know today now that's a lot of the everglades that's half of what it was originally so of course this caught the eye of some people, and the development of the Everglades did lead to some issues, and it even gained attention for the degradation of the ecosystem, since it is the only kind in the world, in the 1970s. Now, UNESCO actually designated the Everglades as a wetland area of global importance, and it really is, and we're going to talk about it later, but there are so many different species of birds and animals that you don't find in a lot of other places that if the Everglades disappear, then so do so many of these species. So it's definitely something that is good to protect. Now, the designation means that large projects of development within a certain radius in the area have also been blocked. And de anything deemed to severely damage the Everglades is, is not going to happen. They definitely want to protect the South Florida ecosystem. Now, the Everglades got an increased attention and even had a restoration of its own started in the 1980s. If you guys hear a bag rustling, I'm sorry. My cat is next to me, and he 
he is just doing his best to to be a cat. So I apologize, guys. Um, the removal of certain canals in the Everglades and the water quality of Lake Okeechobee, which did go down, and the diminishing quality of life in South Florida and some other issues have actually led to a comprehensive Everglades restoration plan, which started in the 2000s. And it was approved by Congress so that they could combat these problems and continue to preserve the Everglades as we have them today. All right, so that might have been the boring part, but now that you know a little bit about the Everglades, let's talk about how it got its name. Because the Everglades, it's not something, you know, you just come up with. So the first written record of the Everglades was on a Spanish map. And by the way, the people who put this on the map had never even seen the land. They just were like, oh, this is an area. Here it is. And they named the unknown region between the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean. So think the southern part of Florida, that whole area. They named it, and forgive me, my Spanish is not the greatest, Laguna del Espiritu Santo, or the Lake of the Holy Spirit. That is a big lake. Okay. Now, the area on the map stayed like that for decades because no explorers actually set foot in the area. The British explorer, John Gerard de Brom, called the area the River Glades in the 1773, which is kind of closer to the name we have today. But the actual name Everglades first appeared on the map in 1823. But it was spelled as two different words up until 1850. The Seminoles, who were home to the area, called it Pahokee, which means grassy water, and it was known as Pahaioke, and yes, that's got hyphens in it, on the U.S. military maps from 1839 until the Second Seminole War. So that's really how the name came about. Now, a determination was made in 2007 that the area was more commonly called the Glades, um, and that made up the interior area and southernmost Gulf Coast of South Florida, and that really corresponds to the Everglades itself. And it's also one of the most sparsely populated areas in Florida. And I can attest to that. There is not a lot down there. There are some really cool, charming cities that we're going to talk about that are down there. But for the most part, the Everglades is pretty much a preserve. You really can't build in it because they've protected it. So it kind of just gets to do its own thing most of the days, which is probably actually what's helped it to be preserved and protected for as long as it has. So the area of South Florida combined with the warm, wet, humid, and subtropical conditions means that it's well-suited for a large marshland ecosystem. Plus, you've got the combined layers of the permeal limestone that's actually underneath Florida, and that created a water-bearing rock and certain types of soil. And all this affects everything, and all this makes up what is known as the Everglades. So if you just thought the Everglades were a swampland, you're not wrong, but you're not right, because there's so much more that goes into it. So we're going to go way, way back in the history of Florida. And I mean way back. Um, Florida has actually been thought to be covered completely with salt water at least seven times since the beginning of the Earth. And that's actually what has helped to contribute to its unusual landscape and geology. Of course, the fluctuating sea levels help to create a permeable limestone. And that just basically means that permeable is the type that water is allowed to seep through it. And in Creating this permeable limestone because of all the salt water, it actually created the Florida Aquifer. And if you've heard of the Florida Aquifer, you, it's, it's well known. It's part of the reason we have a lot of sinkholes and lakes. And it's also a huge fresh water source for northern Florida. Now, the aquifer itself actually lies beneath thousands of feet of impermeable settlement rock that is from the Lake Okeechobee and extends down to the tip of Florida. 
Now, the southern part of Florida is actually made up of five different formations. No, we're not going to go into all of them. I can't pronounce some of them. But the two that have the most impact on the Everglades would be the Miami Limestone and the Fort Thompson Formations. These are the two that we're going to talk about briefly. And they actually formed the Everglades. And this happened during the Pli... I cannot say this word. I'm going to try, guys. I'm really sorry. There's a lot of scientific stuff that I'm just not getting on this one. The Pleistocene era gave it my best. And that was about 17,000 years ago. And it was created because the runoff water from Lake Okeechobee slowed down enough to create a vast marshland that has created the Everglades as we know them today. So, the climate of South Florida also plays into a large part of the Everglades because it's located across the subtropical and tropical climates. And if you're a Floridian, you're going to understand this next part. And that just means basically that there are only two seasons. There's a dry season, which is our winter, which is from November to April. And then there's the wet season, which is what we're in now in the summer. And that's from uh, November. Yeah, the other half of it. Sorry. I was looking. I was like, that doesn't sound right. So, yeah, the other half is the wet season, which is basically the other part. So, April back to November. And that's really when we get about 70% of our annual rainfall in South Florida. That's the wet season or summer. Or as you know it, the five-minute rainstorm. Wait a minute. You'll be fine. That's why you never carry an umbrella because you don't get to open it half the time anyways. So, the dry season doesn't see much rainfall, and that's really when Florida has its lower dew points and lower humidity, and that's really our winter. So, instead of having 100% humidity, we get down to 50% a couple days, not very many. My hair is super happy for those days. I don't know about you guys. Um, but the dry season is really when the Everglades flourish as well. But it also can be severe. It can be drought, which is why we get burn restrictions and water restrictions in place in Florida, because there isn't as much rainfall in the dry season, which is why it's called the dry season. Now, the temperature in the Everglades actually only does a 20-degree swing, even through these different seasons. It usually stays around 65 in the dry season. Yes, it can get much colder. Yes, Florida has freezes. Yes, I have seen snow in Florida. Just want to point that out. Just because it says this doesn't mean it stays like this. It would be nice if it did. So, 65 in the dry season, and then it swings up to about 85, 90 in the wet season. Now, of course, if you're from Florida, you also know that just because it says it's 90, 85 to 90 outside doesn't mean it doesn't feel like 105 outside. So, keep that in mind as well. Now, aside from the unique atmosphere, it's also got a unique... Again, this is science, guys, so give me a second. So... Because of those temperature changes and because of the way the water runs through the Everglades, it creates an evapotranspiration. Gosh, that's a long word. And basically, it's the main way that water leaves the region. So, quick explanation. The evaporation and the water usage from the plants. So, evaporation from the sun. The water soaks up some of the, through the plant roots. And then you add in the thunderstorms, and that's really how the water level changes in the area. So basically, if your thunderstorm is not going to put up enough rain as to what you've already evaporated and used, then that's how the water levels fall and rise. And I went through a lot of pages to come to that very simple conclusion for you guys. Now, the difference in a non-drought year and a drought year can actually easily be as much as 10 inches. So in a non-drought year, if the eve why did I write this so many times? Evapotranspiration 
can be up to 40 inches. And that's just normal in a non-drought year. But in a drought year, if it hits 50 inches, then you have a problem. Because the main water source for the Everglades is still going to be thunderstorms caused by daytime heating and airflow. And of course, that doesn't happen in the dry season. So you can get extreme droughts. Now, if you live in Florida, you can probably tell in your area about what time it's going to rain every day. And I wish that was a joke. No, we do not have a sixth sense from living here. We just lived here long enough to recognize the signs. And in the Everglades, it's about 2 o'clock, uh, which is the normal time for thunderstorms to hit the area. So just remember, guys, if you're standing in Florida and you hear somebody say, oh, it's about to rain, it probably really is about to rain. It'll pass in five minutes. No, you really don't need an umbrella. But I wouldn't be standing outside because most of it is a monsoon torrential downpour. And those downpours are what helps the Everglades to actually reach its water level or its needed water level to sustain its growth. And of course, the precipitation levels are higher uh, in August to September. And this is also because you get wind flow, you get more daytime heating, and hurricane season can bring more storms into the area. And hurricane season really does kick up end of July to probably the 1st of October. That's really the time that you really have to keep an eye on all the storms in the area. Now that I have bored you with weather, the Everglades have three main things that continually shape the area. And that's water, that's a given, rock, and fire. Now water is the main force for the area to help shape the land, the vegetation, and the wildlife in the area. Now, of course, the water comes from two areas. There's water that falls from the sky, which is the thunderstorms, and there's actually water underneath the Everglades and the water that flows through the Everglades. And all of these combined can cause erosion, which is where we get our natural springs and sinkholes that the state's known for and fun to visit. Unless you're not expecting a sinkhole, and then it's really bad, and I don't think anybody's expecting the sinkhole. So that's one of the reasons. And the limestone under the area is continually being eroded and changing the actual landscape so much so that you have small valleys and plateaus. Now, of course, not enough to actually notice, but they do happen. And it, so if you ever look at a map of the ground in Florida, if you take away all the vegetation, you can actually see that there looks like ripples. And it's caused from all this water that is continually moving through the area. And of course, the area is also affected by how long the area stays flooded. And that also can help create those valleys and plateaus in the limestone. Now, the rock under the area is not all the same layers and thickness, which also adds to the issues of how long it takes to become more porous or how long it takes the water to erode away the rock. Now, the rock has allowed plants like seagrass to grow on it, and that's thanks to the two types of soil in the Everglades. And that's peat, which is basically layers of decayed vegetation or organic matter, so think peat peat moss, peat bog, kind of the same thing. And then there's marl, which is a carbonate-rich mud that's made up of clay or silt. And both of those put together, that's where you get the rich soil that will grow a lot of plants in the area. And of course, the layers that stayed under salt water tend to have more layers built up on top of the rock to get this kind of soil. Now, of course, the last thing we said that really shapes the Everglades is fire. And fire is actually the most important for the natural maintenance of the area. The majority of the fires in the area are caused naturally by lightning strikes from the storms in the wet season. And it actually helps to foster plant growth since seawater will burn above, seagrass will burn above the water, but it will not burn its roots below the water. So it helps to clear out the dead part, the large brushes, and the trees. And since the roots of the seagrass aren't hurt from burning, it'll regrow eventually. 
And of course, the fire also releases nutrients from pl- decaying plant matter to help continue and foster and speed up growth in the area. Now, fires in the dry season are so much worse. And I'm sure you've heard that, you know, South Florida, you've heard of the fires in South Florida at times. And that's really more in the dry season. And that's because these fires don't have standing water to stop them. Um, And they feed off of peat. Peat is one of the things that burns quickly and continuously. And it will destroy the root of a system of plants because there's not standing water. Now, of course, the fires are usually contained by an existing water, water system that flows through it. So the rivers and the canals or a rainstorm if you get lucky. But fires are also why, if you've ever seen the Everglades, they have a black muck that covers certain regions. That's where a fire has gone through in the area and basically cleaned itself out. So these are important, but this does not mean that you need to go set one and help the Everglades. The Everglades can take care of itself if we just leave it alone. But those are the three main things that actually have shaped the Everglades to become what it is today. Now, the fun part, plants and animals. Everglades is home to one of the most diverse ecosystems in the area, actually really on the earth. And the area is both home to temperate North American floral, which is probably stuff you've seen uh, north of Florida. And then, of course, tropical Caribbean Florida, flora, which you see in South Florida, they, in, they all grow in the same region because the conditions of the region provide optimal growing. And it helps to foster this lush growth, and it's actually a quicker growth cycle for the plants. The Everglades also serve as an important habitat for a number of protected species. The area is actually home to nine different ecosystems. Yes, that is nine ecosystems all living together harmoniously, growing, fostering, and caring for things that move through it. So that's pretty cool on itself. Um, the hydrologic, so hydrologic just means the time the area is flooded. The hydrologic patterns also add to this and they t- continue to shape the landscape And due to the flat topography, that's actually what helps to create these different areas, as well as the different types of growth. Now, the soil we talked about earlier, the peat and the marl, they also add to this vegetation pattern because certain things grow in different areas better than others. And of course, sadly, human interactions have also, over the years, shaped and changed the vegetation of the Everglades. Now, of course, because of human interaction and because we did use up 50% of the original Everglades, This is why the Everglades became a national park in 1947, and that has really helped to preserve the land and the plants and the animals of this region that have not gone extinct. Now, the founding of the park, though, almost came a little late because due to human interaction, the plants had already changed and certain native plants were already disappearing to be replaced by what's called the exotic plants or non-native plants. And these plants were more used for the landscaping and nursery trade. And so I'm sure you've seen most of them today. Now, native plants do still remain in the Everglades, and thanks to nature, sunshine, and the rain, they're going to stay, and they're going to continue to grow. The Everglades is actually home to the largest remaining standing pine rock land forest. And if you've ever been to Florida, if you Google pine rock land, you're going to know it. You've seen them. I've seen them all the way up to Jacksonville. It's one of the taller trees. It doesn't have a lot of branches, but it's kind of up at the top. They stand really tall and thin, and they're really pretty. But the largest remaining forest of them is in the Everglades. And there's many more plants that we're going to discuss here in a second, thanks to this wonderful ecosystem and preservation. And I'm sure that you've actually heard of some of them. Now, brome liliads and, wow, did I put words I can't say? If a certain type of orchid, 
I can't say that. I'm sorry, guys. Are just two native species into the area as well as over 750 other native seed-bearing plants that call the Everglades home. Now, the park has a total of 164 plant species that have been listed by the state of Florida, and it includes 47 as threatened, 113 as endangered, and four as commonly exploited. So if you do the math, and I didn't do the math, I just thank you, Wikipedia. Basically, 22.5% of the plants in the Everglades is native and is very important to the state. So that's almost a third. Now, two of the species are even federally listed with one being endangered and one being threatened. And five more could be added to the list soon. But of course, the numbers continuously change. And there's about 66 species that are native to the park that are considered critically impaired in South Florida. And among those, there include certain grasses, sedges, ferns, orchids, shrubs, trees, and certain vines. Now, the park is home to a lot of different types of plants, such as bromeliads, succulents or cacti, grasses, lichens, algae, orchids, beautiful wildflowers, trees, and then, of course, the non-native problem plants that we'll talk about as well. Now, if you heard me say lichens and you're not really sure what it is, don't feel bad. Um... The National Park Service has a whole page on lichens in the Everglades. So that's where I got most of this info. And I had no idea. And you've seen these everywhere. And as soon as I talk about them, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. So the Everglades is actually home to the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Wilderness. And that's 80%, 86% of the park. So that's a good majority of the park. The wilderness area is also the largest home to lichens outside of the Rocky Mountains. And it's the only one in the subtropical wilderness of the U.S., so it's a very important place. So what are lichens? Lichens exist in every terrestrial habitat in the Everglades and on all substrates, such as tree barks, roots, leaves, and soil. And lichens are more present where trees are, where more, the more trees are, or tree islands, uh, or cypress domes, those are the best place to see and to discover the lichens. Lichten, lichens. I'm saying lichens. Now, if you're still asking what they are, don't worry. Uh, I really did not understand what it was until I read this. And they're actually a composite of fungi and a type of algae. So they combine together to form a simple, slow-growing plant that usually forms on walls, rocks, or trees. I'm sorry, I'm having a Deadpool moment. Come together to form a super mini robot. Or mini robots come together to form a super robot. Sorry. So think of that. These lichens take two things and they come together to form some super thing. And that's what they are. And they can be found in most of the Everglades and are a variety of colors. They can look like little shrubs. Some resemble Spanish moss or appear as line dots or smudges on the surface. So you've probably seen these, even in your area. The colors can range from red, yellow, green, gray, and white. And they can cover small or large areas. They can either be crusty, leafy, shrubby, or scale-like. Now the cretose-like lichen, or crust-like, crusty, so crusty, um, are the most common form in the Everglades. And if you look it up, it really does look like mossy spots on trees. So if you've ever seen like a green spot on a tree and you're walking and it looks like moss, it actually could be a lichen. And the park has actually started to identify these. And as of 2014, they had identified over 550 species. So I'm sure there's much more since then. And they are very important to the park. And there's something often overlooked due to their appearance. So learn something new today. Um, the Everglades are also home to things that you've seen in other parts of Florida, like sawgrass, tropical hardwood hammock, pine rockland, cypress, and of course mangroves. And they all exist in this park, and they all serve their purpose. 
And the park is actually where you can take in nature in South Florida and actually see these types of beautiful, normal, or even scary-looking plants. But of course, that's not all that's uh, home to the park. Unfortunately, there are some problem plants or non-native species. And the problem plants have actually posed the most problem because they do threaten the native plants in the park to take over or to eradicate them. They are known as exotic, and most of them do grow very quickly. A few of them are known as Australian pine, the Old World Climbing Firm, and the Seaside Maho. And park crews continually work to keep these plants at bay, and the fires can help. And the plants can be a real big problem because they are taking over their natural habitat, and they're not giving them any room to grow, or they're smothering them out. So just because you think one thing is, a, is not going to hurt something, it really can. So just be aware of that if you want to... Like when you put goldfish into a river and then they take over and then you're like, well, why aren't there anything that was normal? Well, it's because you put a goldfish in there. It's the same principle. Things like that can happen. So just be aware of stuff like that. You don't want to take anything out. Oh, and fun fact, uh, mangroves actually help against the hurricanes. They actually help stop the flood on the uh, into inland on the hurricanes. I didn't know that. I thought that was really cool. I think now we all need to have mangrove swamps just to stop the flooding. And it also strengthens them. Strengthen? Strengthens them. Wow, I cannot say that word today. Sorry, guys. All right, now we talked about plants. We also know that the Everglades aren't just home to plants. They're also home to animals as well. And a lot of the more scary animals in Florida do tend to roam the Everglades. Because it is an ideal habitat for many diverse species and it promotes animal biodiversity. The Everglades are also home to species that don't exist anywhere else. The animal species can range from federally endangered, threatened, or an invasive, again, non-native species. And if you've lived in Florida long enough, you probably have one invasive species that come to mind. And we're going to talk about it in a minute. Now, the best time to actually view or even accidentally encounter wildlife is actually in the dry season. And that's when they more move to a central water area. It's also not so hot. So, as the water lowers, you can see the wildlife in these areas. Shark Valley, the Anahinga Trail, and the Eco Pond are actually probably the best places to see the wildlife in the park on the dry, in the dry season. And you'll see such things as wading birds, alligators, and other freshwater wildlife. Now, you can even canoe out during low tide to see a large number of water birds feeding on the flat mud flats. That's going to be a nope from me. But if that's your thing, canoeing is definitely for you, then you should go visit the Everglades and see all these animals. Just watch out for the gators. Now, the park is actually home to many amphibians, and it's pretty ideal due to the wetlands and weather. Toads and frogs can be heard all over the park, and they're actually pretty calming. So that's another fun thing you can see. You can spot them in different parts of the park on the different trails. And the species also range from evasive to endangered, so don't touch the wildlife, guys. Birds are also abundant, probably the most abundant in the Everglades, um, other than mosquitoes. Um, the warm, shallow, large area that got its name from the meaning River of Grass kind of invites all kinds of birds to the region. Wading birds, migratory, and of course birds of prey come to this park. And you can spot over 360 species of birds. And they do fit into those three categories I just mentioned. So wading birds, land birds, and birds of prey. Fun fact, though, it is absolutely illegal to kill, capture, harass, or harm any birds of prey. Side note, vultures are not actually considered birds of prey because they eat dead animals. So, in case you're wondering, there's your other fun fact for the day. Wading birds are actually probably the most abundant in the Everglades, with as many as 16 different species being spotted in the region. 
And the wading birds are most known for their long legs that let them wade into the water and look down into it, and that's how they capture their prey. Now, the most common is the white ibis, and if you've ever been anywhere in Florida, you've seen these little white annoying birds. And they actually eat crayfish instead of fish. And if you can't figure out which bird I'm talking about, it's the little white bird that has the long curved beak that you literally see anywhere in Florida. Not even near water, just everywhere in Florida. Sorry, I can't say I'm a fan of those birds. I find them to be annoying. Um, the wood stork is a larger wading bird that's actually common in the Everglades, and it has an unusual way of eating. It will hold its bill in the water, and then shuffle its feet to frighten the little fish, and then its beak is so, or bill is so sensitive that it clamps down when it feels a fish swimmed into it. Unfortunately, this wood stork is also on the threatened list. Herons are also common. You've probably seen them even outside of the Everglades. The greenback heron is probably the most common in the park, and you will see it dart into water to catch their prey. You can also encounter a great white heron, the great blue heron, the egret, and the rosea spoonbill, which are absolutely beautiful if you've ever gotten to see one. They look like flamingos, but they're a little bit smaller, and they're not flamingos. The park is also home to many different moor herons and egrets. Uh, wading birds are, are mostly known, but you can also encounter such birds as mallards, wild turkeys, flamingos, anahingas. I find anahingas to be so annoying. Sorry. Um, by the way, if an anahinga is around, don't be surprised if you see it drop its fish onto the ground to kill it. It is kind of frightening at first, but it is just the way of nature. So, anahingas, doves, hummingbirds, loons, pelicans, turkey vultures, ospreys, hawks, barn owls, kingfishers, woody the woodpecker, so red-headed woodpeckers, peregrine falcons, parrots, parakeets, the common birds like blue jays, crows, wrens, regular bluebirds, mockingbirds, sparrows, cardinals, and warblers, just to name a few. So if you're into bird watching, the Everglades is definitely for you. And I'm also sure that you've seen a lot of these birds where you live. And that's because they do migrate a lot of times to South Florida into the Everglades. So it really is a bird watcher's paradise. The next thing the Everglades really known for for their animals is actually the fish. And fishing is actually very common in the Everglades since it is mostly water. And it's been a common source of food for hundreds of years. It's also helped shape the human history in the area as well as bring commerce. It is still a popular activity in the area since you can catch nearly 300 species of different fish that inhabit both the freshwater and marine coastlines of the Everglades. The estuaries continue to drive the commercial fishing to this day. Now you can, par you can fish in the park in either both salt or freshwater and since one third of the park is covered in salt water, you probably have a better shot with the freshwater, but to each his own. And it is so popular as long as you come prepared and know that some fish in the Everglades, Everglades contain high levels of mercury. I did not realize this, but apparently there are high levels of mercury in certain fish in the Everglades, apparently south of Main Park Road. I, it, they actually even had a whole thing on their park's uh, website saying you shouldn't eat this. So I don't know if I would even eat any fish out of the Everglades now. But if you're into fishing, they have lots of different areas as long as you're licensed, bring your own bait, and follow the rules. It's probably a fisherman's paradise. You can even find certain things like blue crabs, stone crabs, and shrimp in the park. So it really just depends on what you want to look for. Now, of course, plants aren't the only ones who have invasive species that are taking over. The water systems are dealing with their own problems as well. There are now over 250 different types of non-invasive species that are taking over the waterways. That can include mussels, fish, and kelp, and they're becoming a problem. So again, this is not a good place to rehome your goldfish. Now, 
I don't know a lot of people that are insect lovers, but if this is if this is your thing, then this next part's for you. It's a great place for insect lovers. Aside from its swarms of mosquitoes and flies, there's actually a lot more. The park is actually home to a lot of small creatures like butterflies. There's apparently a lot of different kinds of butterflies that call the park home and are fun to watch. Now, they don't have an official count of how many insects live in the Everglades. That does not surprise me, but there are a lot of different species. This also includes arachnids, centipedes, millipedes, and many other different species. Those are just the most popular. So, don't be surprised if you run across a spider, a scorpion, a tick, or any other type of invertebrate that may, or if you're like me, may not ruin your day. I am not an insect fan. There's a lot more info, um, but it's different. It's more specific to the different types of insects. I didn't know how many of you guys were insect fans, so if you want to look it up, there is a website for the National Park for the Everglades, and they actually have an entire section on such creepy crawlies. So if that's your thing, check it out. Now, of course, the, there are bigger animals that call the Everglades home, such as mammals, and they are just the cutest, and I'll tell you why in a minute. And there is actually 40 plus species of mammals that call the park home and are usually seen in the drier habitats such as the forest and the fields. There's the normal that you expect to see such as deer, rabbits, and bobcats. And they're also the most common. The marsh rabbit is the most common rabbit uh, of the Everglades and it has even been known to seen swimming through the rivers and lakes as it adapts to the wet worlds of the Everglades. Raccoons and possums are also common in the park as they are omnivores and have varying diets that can include turtle eggs and small marine animals. They are happy to make this place their home. Fun fact, the possum is also the only marsupial home that calls the park home. Now, of course, you may also spot gray foxes near the hammocks, and they are known to climb trees, especially leaning trees, so don't be surprised if you look up and see a little face looking back down at you. River otters also have been seen enjoying the park, especially using the springs near the Anahinga Trail. They're often called the playboys of the glades and have been known to feed on baby gators. Side note, if you ever see a river otter in the wild, do not be surprised. They are not what you are expecting. They are not the cute furry little face things that you've seen in the zoo. They can be massive and they will take you by surprise. I have seen some, actually saw some on Disney property one time and I had no idea what I was looking for or at. So if you are lucky enough to see one in the wild, it may surprise you at first, but they're actually really cool. They are fun to watch play uh, frolic with each other, dive in the, the waters and the rivers. It's actually, they're actually really fun to watch. Just don't be surprised if it's not what you were expecting. Now, if you continue through the park, you may even be lucky enough to spot a manatee in the waterways of the Everglades. That's actually pretty cool on its own since they're super endangered. It's another fun uh, mammal that calls the Everglades home. Now, the park is also known for bats. So if you're hoping to catch a glimpse of bats, Nosferatu, or Batman, this might be the place for you. The park is also home to much larger and dangerous wildlife, such as the Florida panther. No, I don't mean the hockey team. Black bears, bobcats, domesticated dogs and cats, and pigs. So be careful. Do not say here kitty kitty and try to pet it. It will not end well for you. The park has also been lucky enough to be home to dolphins and pilot whales at times. So you really never know what you're going to see in the Everglades. Now the animals are all protected by the national park, so please don't pet, feed, or harass these animals. If it looks sick, leave it alone. Do not put it in your car and get it help. You are not helping it. Now, the park is also mostly most well known for its reptiles and of course the most common resident. 
The park does have over 50 distinct kinds of reptiles that range from exotic, endangered, and threatened. And of course, you'll find the non-native ones as well. You can find alligators, crocodiles, and caimans living together in this park, which is actually a rare thing and probably one of the only places that you'll find this. You will also find many different species of snakes, such as the Florida cottonmouth, the boa constrictor, the diamondback, the rat snake, geckos, pythons, and many different types of turtles that can include leatherback and loggerhead, as well as box turtles and gophus. gophus. That's a new one. Gopher tortoises. Making up words here, guys. Let me tell you, it's a Friday. So, the park is a wonderful place to spot wildlife in Florida, but you also will spot things that don't quite belong here, and those are the invasive. And these are the ones that I was talking about at the beginning of the animal part. The feral swine, Burmese pythons, red imported fire ants, and American bullfrogs all pose a threat to our beloved Florida wildlife in the Everglades. The biggest problem is the pythons. The Burmese pythons alone are such a huge problem for the native mammals and reptiles and the land in general. They are known to disrupt by preying on native species and taking away food and resources from these species. They are a rapidly producing apex predator and they can survive long periods of time without food. The pythons have become such a problem for people because they let their pets go in the area, but we can also blame Hurricane Andrew because Hurricane Andrew was a Category 5 storm that came through in the 90s and destroyed a python breeding facility which released numerous amounts of snakes into the surrounding areas. The full number will never be known. Now, python hunting and trapping are a popular way in Florida to help control the population. And I'm sure if you've ever been to Florida and you've watched the news, because it's at least once, probably one to two weeks, you'll hear, oh, another python was caught in the Everglades. And as of July 2020, Florida announced that they had removed their 5,000th python from the Everglades. 5,000. And there are so many more, guys. So if you think something's harmless doesn't always mean it's as harmless as you think. Now, the Everglades has a few different ways to view animals. And if you get there in person, you can, you can go in person. Or they actually have a really cool trail webcam on the Everglades National Parks website. And it's a trail cam for the Anahinga Trail. So it's something fun to check out if, you're, if you like the Everglades or if you want to get interested in the Everglades. Or if you just want to see the Everglades but can't get there right now. I checked it out. It's actually really cool. You can see some little animals walking by. I'm sure that there are better times than others. Maybe if you check it at dawn and at dusk, I'm sure that the more crepuscular animals will be walking around, such as cats or things like that. So definitely check that out if you're interested in the Everglades and just can't get there right now. Now, the website also had a pretty cool thing called Wildlife Viewing Ethics, and I've never seen any other website do this. And it's super helpful to Floridians because of how much wildlife we have in the state, even outside of the Everglades or if you're just going to any park and dealing with wildlife. So I picked out a couple that I thought were really good and I wanted to share them with you. So first, give wildlife space. Don't walk up to it and take a picture. D- just don't. That, that's how you end up on the news for all the bad reasons. Secondly, you've, you've got to recognize signs of alarm. Agitated movements, pacing, heightened muscle tension, staring, and loud vocalizations. So if you've ever been around a cat that didn't want to be petted and it got all up on its haunches and its fur all stuck out and it started making weird noises, it's the same principle. It's warning you. So remember these signs and if you see any of these, leave the area. The third one, do not feed. Do not feed the wildlife for so many reasons. They will get used to it. They will expect it. They will harm people who don't have food thinking that it's the same thing. You might feed them something that they're not allowed to have that can harm them. Just do not feed them. I don't care if they look hungry. They will be fine. Leave orphaned and sick animals alone. 
they're probably not alone. There's probably a parent that was moving them or can't get back to them because they're more scared of you and they don't want you to hurt their baby. So leave them alone. They're not, they're not what you think. And the last one, which I think is the most important, is tread lightly. This is their home, not yours. You will leave and go to your house and they will still be there dealing with whatever you did to them or to that area. So please tread lightly, guys. Please be respectful. Do not leave trash. Do not hurt the animals. You know, just don't. Don't take anything. Don't leave anything. Just take your pictures, view your sites, and move on. The animals will appreciate that. Now, the Everglades are a great place to view wildlife and plants, and this has actually led to tourism coming from the park and the area itself. You can actually visit the Everglades National Park, which is most of what I've been talking about, but there's also different parks in other parts of the Everglades that are a little bit further north or to the other side of the state that can also give you a glimpse into the Everglades. For instance, there's Corkscrew Swamp, which is one, is one park, and it's actually the largest standing old-growth cypress trees on the planet. They measure over 135 feet high and 40 feet in circumference. So that's pretty cool if you're into nature. That's a good place to see the Everglades. Big Cypress National Preserve is probably one of the most well-known as well, and it's another place, especially to view alligators. It is 720,000 acres of wild wilderness and wildlife, and it's got some of the best views for the alligators. There's a 25-mile loop road that leads you directly into the Everglades and right up to the gators. So if that's something that you've always wanted to see, that's definitely the place you should check out. And it is on the west side of the state. So I want to say it's southeast of Sarasota and kind of towards Venice. But it's really a cool place. You should definitely check it out. They've got amazing wildlife and definitely you definitely see an alligator there. The other part of the one that I'm going to talk about that you can actually see in the Everglades has got some cool animal viewings as well. And that's oh God, Fakahachi sorry if I said that wrong, Strand Preserve State Park. And that's another park that takes you to a different kind of Florida animal, such as the panthers and the bears that also live in the Everglades. Now, you can find many other ways to explore the Everglades if you're not a nature lover, an animal lover. You can also visit the few and small towns that line the Everglades. Ochopee, Florida, and Florida City are two small towns that have everything you need to see and bring you right to the doorstep of the Everglades. Now, Ochopee is home to Joni's Blue Crab Cafe that sits off the Tamiami Trail, and that'll take you right through the heart of the Everglades into South Florida. And if you look at a map of Florida, there's two trails. There's I-75, which is Alligator Alley, or US-41, which is the Tamiami Trail. Both take you from Naples to Miami or vice versa. And they take you right through the heart of the Everglades. And it shows you a little bit of the back road through the swamp. Now, the little restaurant that I'm talking about is rustic, and it serves up some great local food while you soak in history. Joni has a really great backstory. She's been there for forever. She knows the history. She knows the area. And she's happy to tell people about it. So if you're interested, that's another place you can check out. And that's off the Tamiami Trail near Ochopee. Now, the other one that I found was really cool. is a. It's called Robert is Here. And it's another great place to stop in the Everglades. And it is described as the Disney World of Fruit Stands. And this fruit stand actually is in Florida City, which is closer to the actual entrance of the National Park. The fruit stand is one of the most famous in Florida, and he serves fresh coconuts while selling local and exotic fruits, and you can, you can find this place. It's actually really cool. I looked up on their website. They have a lot of amazing fruits that you don't get to find anywhere else, so definitely if you're towards the Everglades area, uh, Florida City, South Miami, definitely check it out. It's a really cool stop, just something you didn't expect, and you can find so many more places along US-41 that take you through the middle of the Everglades or even on the edges of the Everglades. And 
this is really where you can find your great seafood, your beautiful sights, and airboat tours. And airboat tours is probably one of the best ways to see the Everglades. And I know that you can take them out of Florida City, and I know you can take them out of OHP, and I'm sure there's a bunch of other towns in between. And the airboat tours are popular for the Everglades because they let you see the ecosystem without destroying it. Because the airboat really just kind of glides over the top of it without really destroying anything. You can find most of these tours on the small towns that border the Everglades or even some that take you from where they're at into the Everglades. And they can last from 30 minutes to an hour. And they let you hover over the natural grass without hurting anything. And you can take in your surroundings, catch a glimpse of the wildlife, maybe even see a swamp ape. That's right, it's Return of the Florida Swamp Ape. Now I know that I talked about the swamp ape in my episode for Florida's Folklore and Myths. But we're going to talk about him again, because we can, and it's the Everglades, and he's a part of it. So, the Swamp Ape has been known as many other things, including a skunk ape or Florida's Bigfoot. The ape-like creature is said to inhabit the swamplands and forests of southeastern Florida, sorry, southeastern U.S., but mainly Florida. This is where most of the sightings are seen. The creature is similar to Bigfoot, stands about six feet tall with dark fur hair covering the majority of its body. It's said to walk up on two legs and give off a horrible stench that passes through the area. So, if you see a large hairy man, don't assume he's a swamp ape. Maybe that's just how it was made. So, sorry. (laughs) Sorry. That one's for you, Roger. Better listen to this episode. So, back to the swamp ape. The Seminoles have have had the myth about this creature of a foul-smelling, large, powerful, secretive creature called the S.D. Kopki, which basically translates into cannibal giant. And the reports have started in the 1818, or around about that time, Uh, near Apalachicola, which is actually northern Florida, when people were speaking of a man-sized monkey raiding their food supplies and chasing fishermen. Now, continue on later in the 1900s, and the sightings really started to pick up again in the 1960s to 1970s. Uh, 1957's probably the most well-publicized when a pair of hunters claimed that an ape invaded their camp. There was again a sighting in 1974 when a large, foul-smelling, dirty, hairy monkey ran into the neighborhoods in Dade County. There's also been sightings in the Big Cypress Natural Preserve, which also I mentioned is another good way to see Everglades, so maybe you'll see the Swamp Man. But of course, the most sightings actually came in 1997 when a passenger bus going through the through a preserve actually spotted a seven-foot-tall ape-like creature in the field. 30 to 40 people all reported the same thing. Thanks to these sightings, though, Florida has actually made it illegal to possess, harm, take, molest any humanoid animals. Sorry, they tried to pass a bill that did not pass. But nonetheless, due to this, a bill was brought up because of it. Now, there is evidence out there, if you want to see it, of the Florida Swamp Man. We have photographs, audio, and footprints that exist of some kind of creature that tends to roam the swamps and forests of South Florida and the Everglades. The sightings do come as far as north as the Panhandle, but they are a majority of them are in the Everglades and preserves. The eyewitness accounts are all the same, same size, color, smell, and an ape-like description being common. There actually is a video uh, that surfaced in 2000 near Ochipi, Florida, which I mentioned a moment ago, uh, that you can see an ape-like creature walking through a field. It's up to you whether you actually believe it, but since this is in the middle of the Everglades, somewhere between Naples and Miami, a little bit closer to Naples, uh, on Alligator Alley, the best evidence to exist of the swamp ape is that video, and there's also a footprint that was cast from the Big Cypress Preserve. 
Now, of course, you can look these up and see them for yourself, and you can make your own determination of as to whether or not you believe that Florida has its own Bigfoot. There are numerous sightings, and they all report the same things, including the smell. That's how he got the skunk ape. And people have tried to actually track it with the smell, and they just say that the creature is fast on two legs. Now, of course, this is going to be something that people are going to continue to look for continuously through these days. Uh, You can even take tours, actually, out of the Everglades to look for the fabled creature just for this creature, and that's out of Ochopee. Uh, they'll take you into the Everglades, and they'll help you to look just for the swamp ape. So if you're not interested in more of the wildlife, you can focus on the swamp ape. And the creature's existence has been denied by scientists, and of course many people. But it is such a large area without a lot of visitors, there's no way that all the rangers can cover that land. So, could it be hiding out there? That's really more what you want to think about it. It's always going to be a topic of conversation, and it's actually become part of a way of life for people in southern Florida. They've adopted it as an unofficial mascot. And you can take the tours, buy souvenirs, and hear stories from the locals about the sights, sounds, and unforgettable smells of the swamp ape. It's not likely to go away anytime soon. So, while the Everglade is a great place to look for plants and animals, you might find something you weren't expecting. Now, unfortunately, the Everglades is also a place of tragedy. It has not escaped that. There have been numerous fires that have actually hurt the area. The hurricanes have devastated the area. And there's even been a few plane crashes that have plagued the area. The Everglades have gone through numerous hurricanes over the years, some of the worst on record being Hurricane Andrew, Irma, Wilma, and Katrina. And these have all hit since the 1990s and have forever changed the landscape of the Everglades. Fires also continue to devastate the Everglades simply because humans are doing it. Not nature, not lightning strikes, but humans. Nature can take care of itself on its own, but humans can wreak havoc on it. In April of 2021, they saw nine fires pop up throughout the Everglades started by human hands. We need to preserve this, not burn it down. And sadly, the Everglades have also been home to three notable plane crashes that add tragedy to the area. The Northwest Flight 705, which was in 1963, crashed after taking off from Miami in a thunderstorm. The plane broke apart during the climb and unfortunately no one survived. December 29, 1972 brought about another dark day for the Everglades as Eastern Airlines Flight 401 crashed into the Everglades. The cause was pilot error, but 75 people survived that harrowing experience. And then there was valued jet flight 592 that crashed into the Everglades on May 11th in 1996. I actually remember this. I remember this happening. It was due to an in-flight cargo, cargo fire. So the Everglades have definitely seen their share of tragedy, and unfortunately they will continue to see many more, especially with hurricanes and humans. Now the Everglades really is a place for everyone. You can find something you like there, whether it's bicycling. I don't know if I'd bicycle around them gators, but okay. Bicycling, photography, bird watching, wildlife watching, sightseeing, taking in the beauty of South Florida, fishing, or whatever you need to do to make the best of your time in the Everglades. You can definitely find some interesting people. Here's some fun stories and taking some good food on the, in the area. But whatever you do, please be responsible if you do go down there. Have some fun. And do not be Florida man. Alright? No. Being famous is one thing, but Florida man is infamous. This is not what you want. So the Florida man story from today is from 2018, and it was too good not to share. A Florida man broke into the alligator farm in St. Augustine while wearing Crocs and jumped into a pool pond full of crocodiles yeah 
The cops found a pair of Crocs and shorts by the crocodile pond before following a bloody trail to find the man in the neighbor's yard. He was taken to the hospital, who then tried to escape through a retention pond and was stopped by barbed wire. I don't know if he was just trying to be one with nature. I'm kind of more surprised he survived his encounter with nature. But please, please, please leave the wildlife alone and do not become the next Florida man. We have enough of them. Don't, don't add to it. Alright guys, this is probably one of my longest episodes ever. I hope I didn't bore you too much that you learned something new or found a new place that you want to go in Florida. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to turn on your notifications so that you don't miss an episode. Don't forget to leave that five-star review. I would appreciate it. As always, check out the new pictures, polls, and questions throughout the week on Instagram and Facebook. Hey guys, I would really like for you guys to use the hashtag ThatFloridaFeeling on your Instagram pictures because I would love to see where you're at in Florida or even just your favorite parts of Florida. Something that everybody can kind of see and share and we can find new places. All right, guys, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening and that's your daily dose of sunshine.